0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1985, an executive at a fairly new company reached out to a company that, at the time, had been in business for hundreds of years. The newish firm was just about 10 years old. It was called Microsoft. The much, much older business, which was more than 200 years old at that point, was called Encyclopedia Britannica. And one of Microsoft's founders, Bill Gates, thought that a partnership with Encyclopedia Britannica could really pay off. Gates wanted to create an encyclopedia for computers, which would help Microsoft be more competitive with their rival, Apple. Apple, by the way, had just launched a blockbuster product the previous year, the Macintosh. But, as it turned out, Encyclopedia Britannica wasn't interested in Microsoft's overtures. They'd been running a thriving business for a long time and turning over all the work that they had done to Microsoft. It didn't seem fair and it didn't seem smart. And after all, lots of people invested in encyclopedia sets and really valued them.
1: I loved the encyclopedia. When I was growing up, I used to bring a few volumes with me on trips. So I would read about maybe two or three letters of the alphabet for a good few days at a time.
0: Now, most people probably didn't value encyclopedias quite as much as Andrew Lee, who was a teenager when Britannica rebuffed Microsoft.
1: But I really loved not just the text, but the plastic overlays of the dissected frog, of the maps, and just being able to travel the world and and through all of human knowledge in one sitting.
0: Lee says he started reading encyclopedias pretty much as soon as he could read, which is why he brought them along on family vacations.
1: The funny thing is, you know, you can't bring all the volumes with you, so you have to choose a few. And inevitably, F would be fairly popular because that had the frog overlays in it. So you could have the sheets of the organs, the skeletal system, the muscular system.
0: Lee's life would go on to become all about the encyclopedia, but not in a way that he could yet imagine. When he was a kid in the 1970s and 80s, printed encyclopedias were in their last days of glory. Britannica's biggest year ever for sales was 1990, and it was pretty much all downhill from there. By 2010, they had released their last printed encyclopedias. A few years before, so this is the early 2000s now, a grown-up Lee was in a meeting with a friend, and the friend described to him what sounded like a idiotic new website. goes, oh
1: yeah, it's a site where anyone can change any page at any time. And obviously I said, well, I'll take a look at it, but it sounds completely irrational for anyone to be able to log into the site. And I looked at the pages, and I looked through them page by page, and said, this is actually pretty good. And I said, are you really sure? You don't have to sign up with an account. Anyone could just hit the edit button the first time they visit it and change any page. And that was what it was.
0: The website that Lee had some serious questions about was called Wikipedia. It was kind of like the Encyclopedia Britannica, But online. And there were other differences. You could get Wikipedia for free, you didn't have to have any qualifications to contribute to it, you didn't get any money for being one of its writers, and articles kept popping up and getting changed every single day. It was a website that, amazingly, would go on to change the internet. It would change how we get information and how we understand what truth is.
1: It is now consistently ranked in the top 10 most visited websites in the entire world. Sometimes if you look at certain languages and cultures, it's clearly in the top five. So only things like Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, or other dominant search engines for certain countries rank above Wikipedia. So that's pretty astounding if you think about it. So we're talking about millions and billions of views a year.
0: Lee is the author of The Wikipedia Revolution, How a Bunch of Nobodies Created the World's Greatest Encyclopedia. He has spent years contributing to the site and is now a Wikimedia strategist working with New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he says the weird way in which Wikipedia is put together, a way that initially made him skeptical that this website could give people accurate information, that may be the key to its success.
1: I usually spend at least two to three hours a week, if you will, editing articles and stuff.
0: A Couple hundred hours a month, yeah. Uh, I'm retired and it's better than golf. Uh, About six hours a
1: day, which would mean almost 200 hours, maybe 200 hours a month.
0: And yes, you know, family feels neglected, the grandkids, the kids. Oh, you're always on the computer, mom. And I am. But at the same time, I'm learning too. Because you're reading an encyclopedia. Those are Wikipedia volunteers Josh Lim from L.A., Jim Hayes from Washington, D.C., Jim Henderson from New York, and Betty Wills from Fort Worth. They make nothing for all the time they put in. But when we caught up with them at a conference for folks who work on Wikipedia, many of whom have devoted their retirement to the website, they seemed like diehards.
1: I wrote an article on Langer's Deli. It's this very prominent Jewish delicatessen in Los Angeles, similar to Katz's in New York. And everyone was surprised. The owner was very surprised that we wrote the article. Um, They started giving me, like, one of the waiters was giving me a free T-shirt, and I got, like, a free sandwich.
0: So I'll write articles about ancestral fishes then things that I've done work on. So it's a project of love.
1: I once got into a terrible argument over a sewage treatment plant in Brooklyn, and that taught me a lesson.
0: <laughs> and then once, once I figured out, gosh, I can fix the internet, I had, to, I had to fix the internet, and I couldn't stop. When you
1: realize that what you're writing about actually makes a meaningful difference in the lives of people, that makes you feel very good.
0: Andrew Lee says he initially thought it was a fatal flaw to rely on volunteer labor, but he has since realized it would be hard to build one of the most important sites on the web without it.
1: Why do we volunteer for anything? Right, so some of the things that we always think of when we think about volunteer editors, you know, why would they do it? Is the qualities to be trusted? Obviously, we're settling for something with volunteers. Right, But if you look around you, there are pockets of excellence in volunteerism everywhere that we see for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, right? If you talk about volunteer firefighting, you talk about the volunteers that help with building houses for the poor, Habitat for Humanity. There's great stories about how, if you buy a house through a commercial developer, I mean, they use staples and and cheap materials. If you get a Habitat for Humanity house, they use real nails and real good quality content Mm -hmm. because they're trying to build a house that lasts 30 to 50 years versus a commercial producer might be 10 to 15 years, right? Mm. So that's just a simple example of how volunteerism doesn't necessarily equate to amateurism, doesn't necessarily equate to cheaper and not good quality.
0: But the thing is, like, Wikipedia is depending on volunteers to be factual, right? To be absolutely reliable. Because when people think, oh, you know, I I wonder what that movie was about or where was that politician born? We don't expect it to be somebody's best effort or their best guest. Like, we expect it to be right.
1: Yeah, I think one of the really fascinating things about Wikipedia was they actually had a community of folks who not only wrote content, but had the ability to craft tools and to wield the tools to effect change on a large scale, but also combat bad actors and to combat, you know, falsehoods in Wikipedia. So that's something that's fairly unique. And what happens is Wikipedia provided that power to folks who had proven themselves in the community and those folks could actually you know alter the system and create software that do wonderful things and extend the capabilities of the community. That's a pretty rare thing. and if you think about it, it's probably something that could only have happened in that really special time between like 1999 and and 2002. that was a quite an interesting time where blogging was rising. And we didn't have social media, but we had a lot of cognitive surplus from folks who were laid off during the dot-com bust. And we actually had a lot of folks who had a lot of programming capability that didn't have a lot of job opportunities. Hmm. And you find that a number of the prominent folks in the Wikimedia movement that built up Wikipedia were folks who were, you know, looking for work or out of work.
0: And is there an army of editors that goes in after the initial people, like... Do the write-up on, you know, they do the write-up on the Washington Monument and then do people go in and make sure things are right or that the, yep, the yes. grammar's right and all that?
1: Yes, that's right. So okay. it is very much a volunteer core and you actually have people who do nothing but grammar checking. Okay. So you might know people who are really sticklers for Oxford commas or non-Oxford commas and you have people who do nothing more than just grammar. You have some folks who do nothing more than just check for vandalism. So we sometimes say it's like an obsessive compulsive dream come true that you can actually find many, many, many tasks in Wikipedia if all you care about is if you use a certain term correctly or you have your punctuation correct.
0: Can you remember any article that you worked on and just talk about it a little bit? Like How hard was it to, to put it together and what was that process like?
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that's going on right now is a concerted effort to try to include more women that deserve to be in Wikipedia to be in Wikipedia. There's a project called Women in Red, uh, and the reason why this is kind of a funny uh, name for it is that when you surf through Wikipedia and an article that should be there but isn't there yet, their name shows up in a red color, and it kind of coerces you to click on that and to help contribute to Wikipedia. When this project first started, less than 15% of all biographies on Wikipedia were about women. Hmm. And this really was an appalling thing, if you think about it. Ever since that effort started, and this has rallied folks in science and in, in writing and in literature and digital humanities all around the world to start adding more content, that needle has moved from 15 to 18%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but think about that in terms of six million articles in the English Wikipedia, for example. That is a lot of change in a short amount of time. And that's pretty significant. So some of the more challenging things to create are these biographies about women who are clearly notable, but because of the systemic problems we have about the sources writing about these women or covering these women in the first place, We don't have a huge depth of sources, Hmm. so oftentimes creating articles about women who are clearly notable in their field, but didn't get the fair shake about being written about in the academic literature over the years, it's tough to find the sources that'll convince Wikipedia editors to accept these women biographies. So that's why I think working with museums, cultural institutions, archives to surface more of this content that can help support the fact that this woman scientist was very notable, but we have problems finding a wealth of sources, that is something that's a big challenge right now and why I'm so passionate about working with the cultural sector to help in this area of providing more sources to help make up for the missing women in Wikipedia.
0: Do you remember a particular woman, like a particular biography that you worked on, like in the vein that you're talking about?
1: Well, I think one of the really fascinating things that probably is no surprise to folks who kind of look into it is that if there happened to be a husband-wife team who worked together on a topic? The man got the bio, and the woman didn't. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and this goes all the way back to Peter and Marie Curie. So, in the 1911 Britannica, I believe Peter Curie had an article about him, and then Marie had kind of a subsection of his article, even though she's clearly, you know, not a secondary actor in discovering radium and in chemistry and physics. We found also that just policy-wise, for example, the Smithsonian, who I also work with as well, they had a policy that. A department or an organization could not hire both a man and his wife that was the policy so the man typically worked for the organization and the woman had to be a volunteer hmm. not by choice but because she had no other option so that means that that woman didn't get a title at the organization and didn't get any coverage so it's these kind of systemic biases that are really tough to overcome and that we need to kind of alter the way that we think about you know what is notable or not
0: um, since the beginning, uh, my understanding is Wikipedia has been nonprofit, pretty much supported by like occasionally they'll ask me for contributions. Right when I when I go on a Wikipedia page, um, how tenuous is this whole you know infrastructure <laughs> that we rely on? How how uh, much does it take to kind of keep it afloat?
1: Right, the fascinating thing about Wikipedia now is it's proud that it is you know kind of donor supported you know when they have the fundraiser you have an average donation of you know 20 to 25 dollars mm-hmm, per person who mm-hmm. donates which is not very different than PBS or NPR and they want to keep it that way they really would not like to see large donors make up like 60% of the budget and have say over the direction of wikipedia now whether this lasts for a long time or can last for the next 20 20 years is a great question because You know, a lot of what Wikipedia does for donations now is through the website, and you might see this gigantic message at the top, right? That says, you know, for the price of a cup of coffee, you could help Wikipedia today. Who knows if that's the main way that people can interact with Wikipedia? So we may not have that space to ask Mm. and solicit for donations going forward. That's a big challenge, especially as we're more mobile than ever. And that's something that I think the foundation who runs Wikipedia has realized and in the last five years they've done a lot more to start building up an endowment, the type of thing you would see at like a university that wants to last 100 or 200 years. So I think that's a good thing, is that raising money for an endowment that will fund Wikipedia out of a long-term investment is something that is necessary to keep Wikipedia alive.
0: Hmm. When you sort of take the the big view of uh, something you've been involved in for a long time now, um, how do you think Wikipedia has changed people's lives?
1: I think it's quite fascinating if you look today as we are wrestling in our you know news ecosystem in our knowledge sphere about what is true and what is not true. The term fake news is being used all the time. You're not sure what to read on Facebook, and whether a political ad is true or not, or if you see a video on YouTube, you're not sure if it's true or not, or who's the person behind it. Almost all these major billion dollar corporations are turning to Wikipedia for help, and Mm -hmm. that's pretty fascinating if you think about that. And they are across the board saying, you know what, we are not sure who's behind certain news articles or where this content is coming from. But one of the tools we're going to give our users is a link to Wikipedia. So if you look it up, YouTube has provided links to Wikipedia for any producer of content that they think is a state-sponsored organization. So you can read up more on you know, who's behind Voice of America, who's behind RT, who's behind TRT, for example. Hmm. Facebook has links out now from content in people's streams to read up on the background of certain publishers in Wikipedia, which is an amazing turn of events if you think about how back in 2007 when Wikipedia is rising, you had famous essays from folks saying, why would we trust this site? Who knows who's editing this site? And it's gone from Wikipedia, the sketchy amateur encyclopedia to Wikipedia, please save us (laughs) from the misinformation (laughs) in our ecosystem. I'm still astounded that we're in that situation. Hmm.
0: Andrew Lee is the author of The Wikipedia Revolution, How a Bunch of Nobodies Created the World's Greatest Encyclopedia. Andrew, thank you so much for your time.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: If you want to know more about why Microsoft couldn't strike a deal with Encyclopedia Britannica, which we talked about earlier, and why Britannica couldn't act fast enough to save itself by getting online, we've got that story on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Teresa Lawler. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.